Welcome to Grace Abounds. I'm Pastor Jen Shaw, and this month we're doing something a bit different. I'll be answering the questions you send in. Questions about the Christian faith, the church, the Bible, anything you may have always wondered about but never asked. Email your questions to pastor at stjohnslutheran.church. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope these words build you up in faith, hope, and love. So here's the first of our questions. Someone once said to me that denying the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. What does that mean? Has anyone else ever heard about what's known as the un... Ooh, kind of some people are like, nope. Some people are like, yep. So what is, what is this idea of the unforgivable sin? Where does that come from? So this is a reference to an encounter between Jesus and the religious authorities that is recounted in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus, the God of all creation in the flesh, is in the midst of his public ministry. He's been demonstrating the healing, saving, life-giving power of God. He's been demonstrating his divine authority over all that could ultimately do us harm. He's been teaching about life in the kingdom of God and healing people and feeding people and forgiving sins and freeing people from demonic forces. And all of this has brought him into conflict with certain religious authorities, like the scribes and Pharisees, who feel that their power and authority is being threatened by him. And so they seek ways to test or question or discredit him. And in the context of what we're talking about today, they acknowledge, as Matthew 12 recounts, that Jesus has been casting out demons because the evidence is clear. There are people who've been freed and healed and are testifying to the power of Jesus in their life. But here's how they explain it. They say that Jesus has been casting out demons by the power of Satan, not the power of God. So they attribute this life-giving, healing, saving work of Jesus to the devil, to the representative of all that opposes God and God's good purposes. And so Jesus responds to them with a a few wonderful words. Uh, First of all, he says, this makes no sense. Why would Satan fight against Satan? He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's where that quote originally comes from. And then Jesus turns the tables a little bit and says, you, you among you, there are exorcists, there are people who cast out demons. By whose power do you claim to cast those demons out? And then he says what has become known as the unforgivable sin. This is what he says in Matthew 12, 31 through 32. He says this to the religious authorities. Therefore I tell you, People will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so that's what has become known 
as the unforgivable sin. And that is something that I know maybe for the person who asked this question, I know for me, in my younger days, caused me considerable angst, wondering if I had somehow committed it. Um, could, could you possibly commit the unforgivable sin? And what does that even mean? Because, of course, we know that God is gracious and merciful and steadfast love and forgiving. So I think these words of assurance and explanation from Pastor David Lose are really helpful. Here's what he says. It seems to me that this sin revolves around rejecting God's good work in Christ as the work of the devil, failing to recognize God's Messiah, rejecting the new revelation of God in Christ, refusing to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit of God to renew and redeem creation. These are what most scholars think Jesus is naming here. The sin Jesus names is an ongoing, even permanent refusal to be open to the movement of the Spirit. You can't sin in this way by accident. In fact, what Jesus is talking about is less something you do, an action or word, and more of a complete way of being, living in utter rejection of God. So, if you're at all worried about committing this sin, I can assure you that you haven't. Here's what I would add. It's not that Jesus would refuse to forgive the religious authorities. Of course he would. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, about the soldiers that were nailing him to the cross. But that in this encounter with Jesus, these religious authorities refused to see their need for forgiveness. They failed to repent and believe the good news. Their moral sense was so inverted that they looked at the good of Jesus Christ and called it evil. It is heartbreakingly ironic that these men who claimed to know God failed to see God in Christ right in front of them. God who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Question two. And again, if that, if that brings up follow-up questions for you, I, I'd love to have them. Please send them to me. So here's another question that I imagine we'll probably bring up a lot of follow-up questions. Really good question. How much of the Bible is meant to be an allegory not to be taken literally? We often speak of the creation or the ark. Some people say Job, Jonah, Joshua of the Old Testament. What biblical heroes have been substantiated by other accounts? Some people go so far as to the virgin birth and resurrection professing they are allegorical. Allegorical. Personally, I cannot picture 11 disciples, and by the way, there were many more, willing to face horrific martyrdom if this was not real. Nor can I. So, <clears throat> as I've mentioned, I grew up in a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church, which I loved wonderful people that did hold 
what we might say a literalistic view of the Bible. The Bible is the inerrant, you may have heard that phrase, inerrant word of God with no mistakes, no contradictions, everything at face value. It's like that bumper sticker you may have seen. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> so for example, a literal seven days of creation, every character in the Bible is an actual literal historical figure. And there's not a lot of space there to consider the context. But this view, as I personally experienced, can lead to some challenges. So I remember very clearly some years ago, one day, while I was working at Universal Studios Hollywood, that's a story for another time, I was having lunch with a Christian friend, we were talking about the Bible, and he said, Job's not real, you know. And I was shocked, shocked. And at that time, honestly, my first thought was, well, he's a heretic. <laughs> I was in a different place. <laughs> but you know, the more I thought and prayed about it, the more I studied the Bible personally and with others, the more I realized maybe, just a maybe here, Job's not a literal historical figure. And, here, and here's the thing. Job's really ancient. Nobody even really knows who wrote it or when. And it does read like a story, a parable, a morality tale. And when you go through the rest of the Bible, unlike, for example, Abraham or Ruth or David, Job isn't part of that historical conversation. And that doesn't mean that Job's not true. It doesn't mean that there's a very real sense in which Job is real, but, but maybe not a literal historical figure. And honestly, when I came to that, I was kind of relieved that maybe an actual person didn't go through all of that. So I've come to appreciate that you can take the Bible Seriously, and I do. It is the life-giving word of God. But maybe not all of it, literally. So, for example, the creation accounts in Genesis are not and were never intended to be an exact scientific historical explanation of creation. That's not their purpose. They are a declaration that the one true God made the creation in goodness and order and beauty. However God chose to do it, God did it. Science can tell us how life unfolds. The Bible tells us why. There doesn't have to be any argument between faith and science. They're answering different questions. Job doesn't have to be a literal historical figure for the story of Job to teach us truth about suffering and faith and the mystery of life. Maybe Jonah was swallowed by a whale. But even if he wasn't, it's still a wonderful story about obedience to the call of God and the God who never gives up on us and 
the God who wants us to have the grace that he extends to people we think may not deserve it. So I was sharing this view of the Bible with a Christian friend uh, some years ago again, and at that time I saw on his face what had been on my face when my friend said, you know, Job's not real. And he, I think, was shocked and said to me, well, where do you draw the line? And I said, and I hope anybody who knows me will know that I said, Jesus. Jesus is where I draw the line. I believe in the literal, actual, historical incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, who was conceived by the Spirit and born to Mary, fully human and fully divine, who grew up in Nazareth, who walked the streets of Jerusalem, who taught us and showed us how to live, who suffered and died on the cross and was buried, and literally, actually, historically rose again to life on the third day, who ascended into heaven and who will come again and make all things new who will heal us and the whole creation, who will bring sin and suffering and death to an end. Here's the thing. I don't believe that our salvation and the restoration of all things depends on whether or not we think Job and Jonah were actual historical figures. I don't believe that our salvation and the restoration of all things depends on how long we think it took the God who made everything to make everything. I do believe that our salvation and the restoration of all things depends on Jesus Christ. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you are also being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I hand it on to you as of first importance, what in turn that I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, also known as Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. Ultimately, the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells, in the words of my favorite hymn that we're going to sing later, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It tells us how abundantly and steadfastly God loves us all. The Bible is the written word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, the Spirit working through its authors, revealing the life-giving good news. In the words of Martin Luther, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. The Bible tells us what we need to know, to know Jesus Christ. I'll finish with these words from the Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Third question. And this is a lovely question, and one I actually get quite a lot. I think you uh, pet owners will understand. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. If humankind was given dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, cattle, and all wild animals of the earth, etc., what does that mean for our beloved companion animals, dogs, cats, birds, etc.? Are they given the same blessing and promise of eternal life after death? My short answer is yes. And here's why. It is evident throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, that God made and loves and will restore the entire creation, including animals. As mentioned in the Genesis account, God made all the animals of the earth and declares what God has made very good, good, the prophet Isaiah, in a very well-known passage, offers a vision of that day in the fullness of time when this broken world will be restored by the Messiah, when sin and suffering and death will be no more, when we will all live in the shalom, peace, wholeness of God. And animals are included in that vision. Here's Isaiah 11. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand in the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, 
For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the whole creation groaning in anticipation of our redemption in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And I just want to say I'm not alone in saying, yes, our beloved pets will be with us in heaven. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis posits that domesticated animals in particular are given an identity, personality, dignity in relationship with their family of which they are a part, and they will therefore be in heaven with that family. They're a part of the household, so to speak. And in Acts 11.14, the Spirit sends Peter to Cornelius with the good news of Christ by which he and his household will be saved. And here's what Martin Luther said, who I learned in researching this question had a dog named Tolpel. He was asked about dogs and other animals being in heaven, and he said, certainly there will be. For Peter calls that day the time of the restitution of all things. So I believe we will be reunited with all of our loved ones in heaven including our beloved pets. On that note, I want to share that we are, for the first time in a long time, doing a Blessing of the Animals service. We're going to do it on the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi, which is Tuesday, October 4th at 9 a.m. Bring your pets for a brief service of blessing in our outdoor park. Amen. Thanks for listening. Each week's episode is edited by Nick Cox. Music performed by our St. John's Worship Band. Sermons by me, Pastor Jen Shaw. Make sure to subscribe to hear each week's message. If you'd like to know more about St. John's mission to know Christ and make Christ known, to share the life-giving word and do the life-giving work of Jesus, visit our website, stjohnslutheran.church. May God bless you on this day and in all the days ahead.